We are continuing our journey through Matthew's Gospel, and we are approaching the climax of the narrative. We've entered the final week of Jesus' life. He spent the past three and a half years bringing the heavenly kingdom to the earth. And as he began his final week, he rode into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey, proclaiming himself to be the peaceful king. Then the next day after he did that, on his way, he re- on his way to the temple in Jerusalem, he cursed a fig tree. Then he entered the temple and began making a ruckus. He threw some tables around and chased some people out of the building, essentially pausing the sacrificial system. That famous incident seemed to make quite an impression on those who were standing around. And then he left the temple, and on his way back out of town, his disciples or on, his ne- on the next day, as he came back into Jerusalem, his disciples noticed that the tree that he had cursed the day before had withered to its roots. It was completely dead, and Jesus took that occasion to teach his disciples about, a little bit about faith and prayer and God's judgment, all wrapped up in some more symbolic imagery. Those are the things we've looked at over the past few weeks in Matthew's Gospel here in our time together. He's been seeking to communicate a message to his disciples about the things that he was doing in Jerusalem throughout this final week of his life. So now we're picking up the story the next day after that, and in his busy week, we're going to find him returning to the temple, going right back in where he was the previous day, causing such trouble, and he just shows up again and starts teaching, like nothing weird or unsettling had happened the day before. On this day, he's going to deliver a trio of parables, three parables of judgment, and they are clearly aimed at the chief priests and the elders of the Jewish people, the Jewish leadership who are supposedly serving God in the temple. These three parables will announce God's judgment against these leaders and the judgment of Israel itself. I'll go ahead and summarize the message of these three parables for you briefly. This morning, we're only going to unpack the first two of the three parables found at the end of Matthew chapter 21. The three parables go together, and each one builds on the previous one. First, Jesus tells the parable of the two sons. In it, he'll lay out God's indictment against the Jewish leaders. You said you'd obey, but you haven't obeyed. And hinting toward the next parable, Jesus will add, tax collectors and prostitutes will enter God's kingdom before you. Second, Jesus tells the parable of the wretched tenant farmers. In it, Jesus follows God's indictment against the Jewish leaders with God's sentence. Your leadership in God's kingdom must be replaced because you refuse to fulfill your responsibility. And you kill God's son. Third, Jesus tells the parable of called wedding guests. In it, Jesus depicts God's execution of the Jewish leaders. You and your city must be destroyed, while others will enjoy the banquet for God's son's wedding. Spoiler alert, if God's son was killed in the second parable, and he's getting married in the third one, God raises him from the dead. We're getting ahead of ourselves. So let's back up to Matthew 21, verses 23 to 27. Before we get into the parables, we see Jesus coming into the temple and teaching, and we see his authority being questioned, which will set the stage for this trio of judgment parables. 
Matthew 21, starting with verse 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? So Jesus has returned to the temple, back where he was the previous day, throwing tables around, chasing people out of the building. Today, he just shows up and he's teaching. And the chief priests and the elders interrupt his teaching. They want to know, who do you think you are? Who gives you the right to come in here and do these things? They're asking primarily about the stuff he was doing the previous day. Who has given you the authority to come into God's house and make this big interruption and do all of these things? So Jesus responds in verse 24. Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. Instead of throwing tables, Jesus merely turns the tables on the Jewish leaders here. This is very typical of rabbinic debate and conversation. So they're not going to get offended by uh, the answer that he's given. He answers their question with a question that seems totally unrelated. And that's normal in rabbinic conversations. So they would have expected this. And he offers to answer their question only if they can answer his question first. So he's challenging them back, and that's normal. So here's the question that Jesus asks in verse 25. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? Let's go ahead and see how they handle Jesus' question. And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say, from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So Jesus has shrewdly put them on the horns of a dilemma. They say, if we answer that John's baptism was from heaven, from God, then he's going to ask us why we didn't believe in him. Believe in John's preaching. Now don't miss that admission. They're plainly admitting that they did not believe John's message. And of course, Jesus knows this, and he's exploiting that reality. This is the trap that Jesus has set. Now consider John the Baptist for just a moment. He had been out in the Jordan River, summoning Jewish people to come out there in the river with him, and he was going to dunk them in water to symbolize that they were going to repent, that they were ready to repent from their sin and rebellion against God and to turn to faithfulness toward God. Those who submitted to John's baptism were announcing publicly that they were ready for God's kingdom to come. They were ready for God's king to show up. Do you remember what else John preached? John told the people to believe in the one who was coming after him. The one who would come not baptizing with water, but baptizing with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John's baptism was rooted in the proclamation of a message that called the Jewish people to repentance, returning to faithfulness to God, that centered on believing in Jesus. The Jewish leaders are here admitting that they have rejected that message. They did not believe, they did not submit to John's baptism. So they can't possibly say that John's baptism came from heaven. But what will happen if they respond by saying that John's baptism was from man? What this would mean would be that John merely made up his message in his own mind or some other human put him up to it. Jesus' question is to identify whether John's message was from God, divinely inspired, 
or merely from John's own creative thinking or from someone else's own human planning. The Jewish leaders observed the crowd standing around in the temple listening to this conversation. They know that the popular opinion about John was that he was a prophet from God. Many of them, the crowd, probably did respond to John's message by being baptized in the Jordan River. So if the Jewish leaders tell Jesus that John's message was false prophecy to be rejected by God's people, then the crowd might react, possibly even violently and aggressively, against the leadership. And they're not willing to take that risk. So, in verse 27, we read their answer to Jesus. So they answered Jesus... We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Truly, we readers of Matthew's gospel should acknowledge the correct answer here. The answer to Jesus' question is the same answer to the Jewish leader's question. Jesus told the Jewish leaders, If you will tell me where John's authority came from, John's message came from, then I will tell you where my authority came from. Jesus was hinting at the truth that his authority and John's baptism came from the same place, from heaven, from God. That's the right answer. That's the truth. But they don't give the right answer, so Jesus presses on, and he's going to bring John up again in the midst of this first parable. So as he continues the conversation with these chief priests and elders, he tells the parable of the two sons in verses 28 to 32. Let's consider the details of this parable. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, The tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So Jesus sets up a very straightforward parable. A father has two sons. He approaches the first son, and he gives him an order. He commands him to go into the vineyard, and work. Today, there's work to be done, and I want you to go and do it. The first son's initial response is rebellion. Outright, blatant, ugly disrespect. But then, later in the day, he repents and goes to work. He says, I will not go. I don't want to. No, not gonna. Not interested. But, I want you to notice something here about this father that I think is unusual. It's not like most ordinary human fathers. An ordinary human father might react to this kind of disrespect. But from this father in the parable, there's no punishment. There aren't any consequences doled out. He simply moves on to the next son. I want you to see how odd this is, particularly in the Jewish context. You see, there's a little commandment in the Mosaic Law that addresses situations like this. Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 21 could be applied to this situation in the parable. 
If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Rebellion against a father's authority in the Old Testament law was a capital offense. Surely not one-time disobedience, a set pattern. But nevertheless, such a rebellious son deserves the death penalty. But the father in Jesus' parable doesn't follow that command. In fact, he doesn't seem that concerned with first-time obedience as a principle. He extends enormous grace. Instead of dealing with the son's outright blatant rebellion, he just moves on to the next son. There's no punishment, no consequences mentioned. Now play this out in your mind. Imagine how the scenario unfolds. The first son says he's not going, and then the father moves on. The father wouldn't know that the first son had changed his mind later in the day and actually ends up going out into the vineyard and doing the work. The father just moves on to the next son. Now consider the second son. Consider how he verbally and respectfully commits, but doesn't follow through in verse 30. The second son responds very respectfully. He says simply, I go, sir. Now the Greek word for sir is the Greek word often translated Lord. At bare minimum, it shows a great respect for the father. He expresses verbal respect, verbal commitment, but then he doesn't actually go. He doesn't follow through on his words. Then in verses 31 and 32, we get the gotcha moment. Jesus invites the chief priests and the elders into the story. He asks them to provide the punchline. Which of the two sons did the will of his father? The chief priests and the elders answer correctly. The first son, the one who was blatantly, overtly rebellious initially, but ended up changing his mind, repenting, and going into the vineyard and doing the work he was commanded to do. Each of these three parables is going to have one of these gotcha moments. Jesus is going to trap the Jewish leaders in every one of these three parables. He's trapping them very cleverly. In the first parable, they don't seem to get the symbolism initially, but Jesus makes it very clear. The first son, who was blatantly rebellious, represents tax collectors and prostitutes, The worst of the worst from the Jewish leader's perspective. Tax collectors and prostitutes don't even care about God's law. They're not concerned about God's commands, and they flout His commands on purpose. They are blatantly rebellious in their careers, in their lifestyle. Jesus says that they get into the kingdom before you, before the chief priests and the elders. Thus, going into the vineyard and working represents getting into the kingdom of God. So then, who does the second son represent? It's the chief priests and the elders. The Jewish leadership is represented by the second son. The son who cared about being respectful, cared about saying all the right words, 
cared about showing great respect with his words to his father. But then when it came to put feet to his words, he refused to go and didn't actually obey. Jesus explains this and brings the point home by referring back to the preaching and ministry of John the Baptist. John had come preaching the right things, the way of righteousness, the right way. He invited the Jews to enter in, to prepare for the coming kingdom, to repent and pursue the way of righteousness. The life of true faith in God that results in repentance and righteousness. John pointed to Jesus, but the Jewish leaders refused to believe the message. Tax collectors and prostitutes did believe the message. They actually went to the Jordan River and got dunked in the water. They actually believed John's message that looked forward to a coming Savior, to the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The tax collectors, like Matthew, who's writing down this story, and prostitutes, they believed John's message. They responded appropriately, even though up to that point, they had lived their entire lives in open rebellion against God. So how does this parable come home to us? Verbal confessions do not secure salvation. Verbal confessions alone do not secure salvation. The words that we say alone don't save us. When we're looking for assurance of our salvation, when we're looking for how we can know for sure that we're okay, that God has saved us, that we really are headed toward the new creation, we might look back at that moment that we first prayed a prayer or that we first said certain words or when we walked down an aisle and signed a card. Jesus is in here insisting that words by themselves mean nothing. Pastor Doug O'Donnell rightly says to Jesus, verbal faith is not saving faith. A doing faith is saving faith. Faith and repentance are two sides of one coin. You can't have one without the other. That's what it is being depicted in this story. The first son was outwardly rebellious, but he changed his mind. He repented. He turned around from what he had said, and he did something different. Repentance results in doing the will of the Father. And without doing the will of the Father, there is no salvation. If you go back to Romans 10.9, you have to be sure that you quote both parts of the verse. Paul says there, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It's not if you confess with your mouth alone. The confession of the mouth should, should reveal the faith that's in the heart. But one could reasonably ask, how do you know if you've believed in your heart? Both this parable and many other places in Scripture tell us that if you believe in your heart, there will be outward evidence in your life. James 2 tells us plainly that faith without works is dead faith. No faith, non-existent faith. If we just say with our mouths and there's no change, no transformation in our lives, we should not have 
assurance of our salvation based on that verbal profession alone. Talk is cheap, they say. Or to ask the same question in terms of the parable, how do you know which son you are? Are you working in the vineyard today? That's the key question. Are you working in the vineyard today? Some of you may be struggling right now with confidence about whether or not you know Jesus. I would encourage you to read and study the book of 1 John. It takes about 10 minutes to read through. Reflecting on what is given to us in that little letter will help you learn how you can know you have eternal life. John tells us that's why he wrote the letter. That letter will send you to look for two primary things in your life, and he'll take you there repeatedly. John likes repeating himself. He'll push you first back to the cross. He'll push you back to reviewing what Jesus has done for you. He'll take you back to the gospel message first and foremost. Look again to see Jesus dying to pay for your sins. Look again to see Jesus rising from the dead, victorious over all sin and over death itself. So John will take you to the gospel again and again. But he'll also push you to look at one other area. And it's not to the words that you said one time, either in prayer or in confession. Instead, he will challenge you to look at your life right now, in the present. He'll ask questions like, are you walking with Jesus? Do you see evidence of God working in your life? That's where he pushes you He'll say it in different ways. Do you love your Christian siblings? Are you walking like Jesus? Are you living righteously? But from those things, don't think that you have to be perfect or sinless like Jesus. To properly respond to John's first letter, when you look at your life, you will, you will surely see, if you're being honest, I'm all messed up. I'm broken. I'm not following Jesus perfectly. And you see, that's actually a big part of it. People who really know Jesus, people whom God has saved, admit when they sin. We admit it freely because we know that we've been freely and fully forgiven. There's no fear of condemnation. And so we freely admit our sin and we seek to repent of it. John will tell you that that is an evidence of God's grace that can be a part of how you know that you're really a follower of Jesus. Jesus actually points in the same direction in this parable. Are you working in the vineyard today? Let's look at the next parable. The parable of the wretched tenant farmers. It's a bit unclear whether the chief priests and elders really felt the sting of the first parable at first but they'll feel it with the next one. Let's read the first part of it in verses 33 to 39. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. 
But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now, let's stop right there. The story, again, is relatively straightforward. A vineyard owner has to leave his vineyard, and so he hires some people to come and live on his property and take care of his vineyard while he's gone. They would have lived there for several years. This is a situation that would unfold over several seasons. As these tenants live on his property, they receive for their salary a portion of the harvest each season. But the bulk of the harvest goes to the owner as his profit. At least it's supposed to. Now, notice the elaborate detail at the beginning of the parable. Jesus is highlighting the care of this owner for his vineyard. He has done everything for this vineyard to ensure its fruitfulness. He's put everything in place that needs to be there. He's put a fence around it to protect it from animals. He's dug a wine press so that the grapes can be moved quickly and efficiently so they they can be pressed into wine. He's built a tower there so that the servants can stand up in it and watch so that no invaders come in to do damage to the vineyard or steal the crop. And then he has to go away for a while for some reason. So he hires these tenants. They're going to come live there on his property for a time. And when the harvest season comes, he sends servants to them to collect fruit from his vineyard. Now, let's talk about some of the symbolism at this point. The vineyard represents God's kingdom. That will become clear when Jesus starts explaining the parable. But it's God's kingdom as has been manifested in the nation of Israel. Jesus is drawing on Old Testament imagery here. Isaiah chapter 5 is especially in view, where there's this beautiful duet between the prophet Isaiah and Yahweh, the God of Israel, singing together about God's vineyard. And that song describes the unfruitfulness of that vineyard and announces judgment on that vineyard for its unfruitfulness. Jesus puts a spin on that song. He zooms in on these tenants who take care of the vineyard. The tenants are, of course, the chief priests and the elders, the leadership of the Jewish people, who have been given stewardship over the kingdom of God. They've been given stewardship over the people of God. Their job is to ensure that the owner, God, has a fruitful people. That's their responsibility. The servants that the owner sends represents the prophets throughout history that God sends to his people. Prophets including, for example, John the Baptist. The tenants' treatment of the servants in the story represents the way the Jewish people, or the Jewish leaders in particular, often treated God's prophets. Abuse, violence, and murder. Finally, Jesus fast-forwards a bit and gives a kind of prophetic announcement of the imminent death of the Son of God. His own death is announced here in the story. When they kill the vineyard owner's son, it's hard to discern the logic of the tenants in the story. Maybe they assume that since the son is coming to them and not the owner himself, perhaps the owner has died. But in any case, after Jesus includes that detail in the story, he invites the Jewish leaders into the story yet again. Look at verse 40. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, 
What will he do to those tenants? The chief priests and elders get to give the right answer again, and in doing so, they announce their own condemnation. But they don't know that yet. See their correct answer in verse 41. They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. They are outraged at this picture that Jesus has painted for them. They're outraged that these tenants would so abuse the servants sent to them to rightfully collect fruit that belongs to the vineyard owner. Jesus presses home the gotcha point here by quoting a series of Old Testament scriptures. He powerfully mixes his metaphors here as he quotes several verses referring to stones. He begins by quoting Psalm 118, 22 and 23. Now, the Jewish leaders know their Bibles really well, from cover to cover. But this psalm should especially be ringing in their ears, because everybody has been singing it over the past few days. During Passover week, as Jewish pilgrims come flooding into Jerusalem, they're supposed to be singing Psalms 113 through 118 over and over again. Look how Jesus brings this text to bear on the situation. In verse 42, we read, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is mixing his metaphors. He's just told a story about a vineyard, a vineyard that ended with the killing of a son. Now he brings in Psalm 118, which is poetically describing a construction project. The psalm depicts a group of builders who have a blueprint that they're following, and they're ready to get started building. So where do they go? They go out to the stone quarry, and they're looking for a particular stone, what is called the cornerstone or capstone here. It's not actually clear which stone is being referred to. In the Hebrew of Psalm 118, the phrase is literally the head of the corner. So in a two-story building, it may be pointing to the final stone set, the capstone that holds the entire structure together in some way. Or it could be what we typically think of in terms of a cornerstone, which would be the first stone set, which establishes the direction of the building. The cornerstone essentially determines how every other stone must be positioned. In either case, whether the first stone or the last stone, from the vantage point of the psalm, the stone the builders are seeking is the most important stone in the building. That's the point. So the psalmist describes the builders going to the quarry and they start picking up stones and looking them over, examining them. They'd be assessing the stones, looking at them, asking, is this the one that would best fit that all-important part of the building? Is it strong enough? Is it good enough? The psalm indicates that they actually pick up the one that the Lord has intended to be that special stone. And they look at it and say... This is garbage. And they chuck it over their shoulders. Now we could assume that they would then pick up another stone, an inferior stone, and choose it instead so that they can go commence with their building project. Thus they'd be taking a less important, weaker, cheaper stone to complete the construction project. That doesn't bode very well for the building, does it? 
But the point here is that the builders rejected the very stone that God had designed and intended to fill that role. They were too blind to see it for what it was. So Jesus is saying that the son of the vineyard owner is the stone of Psalm 118. That means that the tenants in the vineyard story are the builders in the psalm. They should be able to connect these dots from what Jesus says here. However, this stone which they rejected and tossed away as garbage ends up getting into the building anyway, despite the inability of the builders to assess it properly. It ends up serving as the cornerstone in spite of their grave error. Notice what the psalm says. It was the Lord's doing. It was Yahweh's doing, not the builder's. If the rejected stone is the killed son from the parable, we can see likewise that it's after, after the stone was rejected that it finds its proper place in the building. This too implies the resurrection of Jesus. The only hope for this building project to be completed is the restoration of that stone to its proper place. The builders fail to complete the construction project, but that's not the end of the story. The Lord completes the building Himself. Notice also that the psalm says that it's marvelous in our eyes. Whose eyes witness this great accomplishment? God's people will look and see the final construction of the building in spite of the failure of the leadership. And they will say, wow, how amazing. God did what our leaders completely failed to do. Even in the face of disastrous failure, God's plan is not derailed. The failure of the builders is even woven into the fabric of the story. In verse 43, Jesus then presses the point home plainly to the chief priests and elders listening to him. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. It's these people who will marvel at God's work when they see the completion of the construction project. The punchline of the parable of the wretched tenant farmers is that the leadership of the chief priests and elders has come to an end. Jesus directly tells them, you are being replaced. But Jesus doesn't specify who is coming to replace them. There's some debate about that, and we're not going to get into the weeds of that debate. Since Jesus doesn't specify, it's probably not important to figure that out right now. Jesus then returns to the stone imagery in verse 44, but he draws on other Old Testament scripture to depict what happens when you oppose the stone of God's choosing. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now this wording might tip us in the direction of viewing the stone of Psalm 118 as a capstone. If this is a corner capstone that's basically holding together a two-story balcony and maintaining the stability of the whole structure, Then in the first part of the verse, Jesus pictures the possibility of someone walking around on the balcony 
and they trip over the capstone in the corner. What happens when you trip over the edge of a balcony of the second story of a tall building? I think the technical theological word for that is splat. (laughs) The point's this. If you trip over the stone that God has chosen, you lose. In the first half of verse 44, Jesus is borrowing from the imagery of Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14 and 15, where the prophet says, And Yahweh will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. In these verses, Yahweh himself is the stone. And Jesus can comfortably combine the stone of Isaiah 8 with the stone of Psalm 118 because Jesus himself is that rejected stone and Jesus is God. So that when the Jewish leaders and anyone else rejects him, trips over him, they face condemnation and destruction. But in the second half of the verse, the imagery is turned around. If you happen to be walking down on the ground underneath that balcony and that capstone suddenly dislodges and drops down upon your head, what happens? I think the technical theological word for that is squished. The point's the same. If you remain in your hostility against the one true God and the one God has chosen to save you, you will be judged. You will be broken permanently. This reversal of the stone imagery where it falls on you and rather than you tripping over it to your doom comes from Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2. The Babylonian king had been given a dream from Yahweh, the God of Israel, and he called on Daniel to detail the dream and then explain its meaning. Daniel described the climax of the dream in this way, Daniel 2, 34 and 35. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. The image of the great statue made of different materials, which Daniel explains represented different human kingdoms from the Babylon of Nebuchadnezzar's day to the Roman Empire of Jesus' day, and perhaps more generally representing all human kingdoms. Daniel explains the message in verses 44 and 45. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. Jesus has been establishing, setting up, the heavenly kingdom on earth in his ministry. The Jewish leadership of the rebellious Israel has become caught up 
in the earthly human kingdoms. Instead of faithfully reflecting God's kingdom in this world, they have become very much just like any other human kingdom. And their leaders are little different from pagan political leaders. Thus, Israel too must be smashed by the stone. Jesus is the rejected stone. He will soon be the killed son, but he is ultimately the divine and royal stone, victoriously establishing God's kingdom on the earth through his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to his throne. Those who take refuge in him, those who trust him, those who don't trip over him, will find citizenship in God's kingdom and eternal life. Those who trip over him or actively oppose him will be destroyed. From all this, there is also an application for church leaders today. Whether or not church leadership is the ones depicted as the replacement of the tenants, there is a negative message here. The Jewish leadership had been given responsibility for God's people. They were supposed to equip God's people to be fruitful and to hand that fruitfulness over to God. Thus, leaders of God's people today, the elders that God has appointed in churches, have been given a responsibility to equip believers for greater fruitfulness. Paul uses the language of equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Let me take a moment to preach to the elders directly which would include preaching to myself. We should take it as our great joy and our great responsibility to be concerned about ensuring that all of the people who gather here are fruitful and increasingly fruitful. We want to see all of you fruitful, obedient to the Lord. That's what the vineyard imagery is all about. God's people are called together and built together to be a fruitful people, people who bear fruit for God. And he appoints leadership to help make that happen. Now let's see how the chief priests and elders respond in verses 45 and 46. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Jewish leaders understood the point, yet they remained hostile. They got the point, but they responded wrongly. They should have responded by repenting and submitting to Jesus, but they don't. Instead, they bring in the police, and they're ready to arrest him, but they're too cowardly. They know that the crowds would probably riot, and so they don't follow through with their desire here to arrest Jesus. Now, as we conclude this morning, we hear Jesus in these parables announcing judgment on his enemies, these Jewish leaders who remained hostile to him. The warning should come across to us today. If you're hostile toward Jesus today, don't remain so. Or if you're apathetic toward Jesus, don't stay there either. That's the losing side, ultimately. You are being offered an opportunity to join the side of fruitfulness this morning. For those of us who know Jesus, who are part of the Lord's vineyard already, the message is simple. Pursue fruitful obedience to the Lord. I can't sum it up any better than the great hymn writer, so I'd like the music team to join me on the stage. 
I'd like for us to close our time together singing Trust and Obey again. I've said many times it is my favorite hymn, and the reason for that is because it sums up so much biblical truth. So many biblical passages drive at this very point that we would trust Jesus and out of that trust obey Him more faithfully, more consistently, and more fruitfully. So I invite you to stand with us and sing these words from your heart.